As uh, we're playing that song, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Right. Does anyone know who was singing that by any chance? No, not Aretha. Even better. No, not Ella. Mahalia Jackson. Did you say Mahalia did? Mahalia Jackson, the Battle of Jericho. So I wanted to play that to kind of just kind of build a little bit of a, a sense of atmosphere of what we're going to be teaching on today, or I'm going to be teaching on today. And that is the lessons uh, from Dr. King. And the reason why I wanted to do that is, um, I guess if you have a federal job, you absolutely know this, but some people without federal jobs don't really quite realize it until they go to a bank or something. But on Monday is Dr. King Day or Martin Luther King Day. Okay, this is Monday. So, you know, I, I as a school teacher, schools are closed, the, the banks will be closed uh, because the nation is commemorating so much and it's so much bigger than even Dr. King's birth. Uh, it's even bigger than Dr. King's legacy. It's, it's about essentially the, the nation learning, learning to come together in unity. And so I wanted to take a, a moment this year to, to not only just recognize and honor uh, what Dr. or Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had done and, and helped complete, but also to plug in and say, you know, what are some of the things that we can learn from the civil rights movement of the 1960s and what can we learn uh, from some of the things of his life because the reality here is, and, and not everyone gets into this, but it's probably a, a message for another time, uh, Dr. King was very much like a, like a, like a King David uh, because he did amazing things, uh, but he was human and he had some, uh, some, 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 some faults and there are some things that happened towards the end of his life that were very similar to King David. Um, and that's part of his humanity. But regardless of that, there's so many powerful things that he was able to accomplish and do. I really believe the only way you could do that was with the presence of the Lord. So Ephesians chapter 2, 14, it says here, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity or the conflict. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the scripture verse right here is Paul talking about a separation that has occurred, or not occurred, always was, between both Jew and Gentile. And that the coming of Jesus and the presence of the Lord has brought a binding together of both Jew and Gentile. Um, 
And so, how would I say this? I mean, in some regards, you know, 2,000 years ago, the big separation between people groups, at least in this area of the world, were Jewish people and Gentile people. Uh, and that could be like some kind of connection. You know, there's been a lot of repairing of the enmity between both black and white Americans, largely because of the, the things that Dr. King was able to do. But in some, some parallel, there's a similarity particularly in the past in America, right? There was this separation, a very clear separation, particularly in the South, between uh, black Americans and white Americans. And so later on, the scriptures, you know, um, the, the scriptures say that there's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, but we're all one. One. But with that, there's something also, something beautiful, is that a female is not a male, and a male is not a female. And a Jew is not a Gentile, and a Gentile is not a Jew. And a black man is not a white man, and a white man is not a black man. We are made different in some ways. And our cultures have something to add to the kingdom. Right? We don't all have to be exactly the same. I mean, my wife adds something to the marriage that I could never add. And Jewish people add to the, the, the kingdom of God things that Gentile people couldn't add. And black people or Hispanic people or Asian people or Filipino people or Indian people add something to the kingdom that maybe me as a white Anglo-European could not quite add. But when we all come together, right, the body is fully working. And it's such a beautiful thing. What was so sad is for so long, that wasn't happening. For so long, it wasn't happening. So Jesus preaches that there is, there's a unity of the one new man, that we all can have unity as the sons of God. But it's very peculiar because, I don't know, like rub everyone, you know, it's, so, it's, it's just sometimes popping the bubble, you know, but like people say that like, oh, America was this Christian nation. So, okay, America is this Christian nation. But this quote-unquote Christian nation had institutionalized slavery for 250 years. So a nation that we like to say is Christian had institutionalized slavery, taking people and selling off their children and splitting up families and whipping people and clubbing people. And those people that are doing that are some of the biggest churchgoers at the time. For 250 years, this nation had not just slavery, but an institutionalized slavery which means that there are laws and government powers and agencies that are in place that are going to make sure that that slavery continues. There's a whole other level. Woo! Now it's like, man, how, how do these quote-unquote Christians in the South and in the North for a period of time, in the South, how do, they, how do they even like, how do they wake up in the morning and do this? Like, how, how, do, they, how do they rectify putting a man in, in chains. So, with that, there's a very creepy, misunderstood verse in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, verse 24 says this, So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Noah wakes up and he sees, and we won't get into it, but he sees what his youngest son had did to him, a sin. And because of that, Noah and essentially God curses the younger son. It says, then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. 
And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So what we have right here is the sons of Noah. There are three. Shem is where we get the Semitic peoples from. Those will be both Arab and Jews. Japheth is where it's believed you have essentially uh, Europeans and, and maybe Asian people. And then Ham, whose son is Canaan, which gets a little complicated, but when they talk about Canaan, they're actually talking about Ham. Ham had darker skin, it said earlier in the Bible. So, for 250 years, there are people who are taking this scripture verse out of context and saying, oh, you see, Noah and God himself said Ham, who so happened to have darker skin, is to be a servant, a slave to his brothers. And for that long, we have institutionalized slavery by Christianity in some regards, right? Because they're taking a scripture out of context to try to appease their consciousness, uh, consciousness, or consciousness. I always get those two confused. Conscious. Conscience. Thank you. So they have to use a scripture verse to try to legitimize these things. It's funny, they didn't take like other scripture verses to say, like what Paul, is it every seven years you're to free your slave? Right? Is it every seven or every, every jubilee year? I forget it's every seven or every 60. I forget. It's like, okay, so you, so you want to build slavery off of some kind of biblical principles, but yet in the Bible it says every seven years or 60 years, you're seven to free to slaves and, and get rid of debts and all those kinds of stuff. Like they're not talking about that one. And then in the New Testament, it talks about like, you know, you're loving your brother and all of that. So it's very interesting how they pick this up, but they have to do that because it, over time, slavery inherently became wrong to the conscience of men. And in order to satisfy their own greed, the South particularly had to validate, validate slavery with the Bible. And it's really, it's, it's not a biblical really thing. It, it's really a, a thing of greed. I mean, really, essentially what happened here is, is people that were engaging in slavery, it's their greed that is what, what destroyed them. Yeah, for example, I mean, people throughout time and throughout history have, have had slaves. Like, literally, Africans in Africa were taking other Africans and selling them off into slavery. Like, white people enslaved other white people. And so it wasn't always a white-black thing. It was essentially just enslaving other human beings. Now, in America, it largely became that, of course. But it was man's quest for greed to be able to own another human being so that they can fill their pockets with more gold. Um, it's funny. People are like, I can't believe these Southerners would do this, but up, up in the North, you know, the Northerners, we would never do this. Or, we, you know... It's actually quite comical, and to kind of prove the point of, 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 of the greed factor is this. In the north, north of the Mason-Dixon line, which is that red line, Philadelphia is the furthest or the, the most southern northern city. Like, we are, like, right on the tail end of almost being in the south. We don't realize that, we don't think about that, but we're, like, almost there. The Mason-Dixon line was the dividing point between the north and the south in the Civil War. And it's because largely once you break through the border of Pennsylvania, things change. And it's not that men's minds change necessarily yet. It's actually what changes here is lifestyle and farming and the economy changes. 
you break through that line, the growing season is longer. You can grow certain types of, of, of crops that you can't grow north of that line. I mean, just look at this last present storm. We're right on the edge of it being all rain. And you just go a couple miles north and you're getting slammed with a foot of snow. We're right on the cusp of the south. And so what happens here is in the north, the economy of the time of, of, of leading into the Civil War, the economy of time is, is mostly industry, mostly merchants that are selling business. Um, and in the south, it's, it's mostly a, what we call a cash crop, meaning you have cotton, you have tobacco, you have corn, and you have very, very large farms. In the north, you have mostly small farms. And most of the north is now actually even transitioning into industry, shipbuilding, manufacturing, all this kind of stuff. But in the south, you're not doing that because the weather's so nice. So what I'm getting at here is it's not that the north just had this epiphany that slavery was so wrong, I don't think. Is that the South was completely dependent, quote unquote, at the time on slavery to fill their pockets with gold. In the North, with smaller farms, you don't need slaves. But in the Deep South, you need cheap labor to make it happen. And so, what I want to just point out here is, is this notion of greed and having to use the scriptures to justify your greed. We could probably do a whole sermon on that. Especially in the Western church. Feed the poor. Don't make money an idol. Don't chase after the kingdoms of the world. What profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? But it's very easy. You know, we, we could really actually just use scripture verses to justify a lot of things. And I think in the South, they weren't necessarily trying to justify their slavery per se, possibly. I think they were trying to justify their pursuit of greed, and they used slavery to get their greed. The question is here, what do we justify in our own scriptures today? What do you use in the scriptures to justify a behavior? To justify your greed, or to justify your lust, or to justify whatever it may be. Now what happens here is, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln uh, comes onto the scene and he, and he says something very profound. Right in the middle of the Civil War, he gets reelected. And he gives his second inaugural address and he says this Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of Unrequited toil shall be sunk until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And what he's saying is his inaugural address, I don't necessarily want to get into like theology about all this, but it seems like he's kind of right, at least in the, in the reality of what's happening. He's saying, until we pay with our own blood all of the blood that we have spilled by the lash of slavery, not until then will this war end. Now, I don't want to build a theology out of that. I don't know what's really going on in the heavenlies with all of that. There's the grace of the Lord, and if people would repent and, and go before, but the South is not repentant, are they? And we see that a lot, a lot of blood is spilled 
to pay for the burden and the sin of slavery. It is by far the most amount of casualties that have ever occurred in war in the United States. 620,000 Americans killed. Uh, In Pennsylvania, it was the worst. Just two hours west from here, 51,000 men, their blood soaking the soil to bring an end to the sin of greed and the sin of slavery. It's amazing. I know what's really crazy here is, of course, after all this time, slavery is abolished essentially in 1865 uh, with the ending of the Civil War. And for 100 years, the black community's life had barely even improved. For 100 years, there's still stuff going on. Um, In fact, um, there is a system of, of codes, of laws in the South, known as the Jim Crow laws. Such it was designed, oh, if the federal government is saying slavery is, is, is illegal, we're going to figure out a bunch of different laws to try to circumnavigate that. Right? You can't vote unless your grandfather had the right to vote, which means that if you're a black person, you're, you're not going to be able to vote because obviously your grandparents weren't voting. Uh, black people need to eat in this restaurant, and white people can eat in this restaurant. You can use certain bathrooms. You can't use certain bathrooms. You're not allowed to commingle. If a teacher in the South is found in the state of Mississippi teaching a black kid and a white kid together, they'll get their teacher license removed and spend seven years in prison. At 11 o'clock in the South, all black people must be at home in their houses, a curfew. If you even look at a female, a white female in the wrong way and there's accusations, we will find you and we will lynch you. And the whole town comes and shows up and watches as if it's entertainment. So for 100 years, uh, black Americans, particularly in the South, are, are, are still living in this kind of slave-like state. And Dr. King is going to more or less come to, come to this and say, how long shall this last? How long can we continue to play this game? 100 years after the abolishment of slavery, we still live in a slave-like state. And so this is where we get into what are some of the things at that time that Dr. King is teaching us. You know, one thing that he teaches us is that, and this is very, very powerful, and I really say I want to watch myself, I don't want to ruffle feathers. I really wish that the the, the church today got this principle. And he came up up with the idea that wasn't really his idea. It came from St. Thomas Aquinas, came from Henry David Thoreau, came from, in in many regards, Jesus as well. It's the concept of this. If you change laws... That does not bring a change to things. Like you can make a law to do whatever kind of morally righteous thing that you want, but it's not going to change the hearts of men. That's been proven with 100 years of Jim Crow laws. Laws do not change men's hearts. They will continue to do what they want, and they'll find ways around it. Now, is it a normal pursuit to, to pursue a law? I think so, but I wouldn't put all of your hope in it. Is there a noble pursuit to, to, to determine and try to come up with a law to, to overtone Roe versus Wade, abortion? Yeah, I think so. But I wouldn't put all of your hope into it. Because what we know in the 1940s and 1950s when abortion was illegal, women still got abortions. Less, but they still got them. 
More powerful than the law is a changing of hearts. So, you know, we could, we could put up on our Facebook wall all this kind of stuff about changing laws and you hide behind that. But what Dr. King would be saying to you is don't put this stuff up on your Facebook wall. Go out and befriend and love on a woman who is single and has a baby and is thinking about abortion. Amen. Go love on her. Amen. Go give her money. Amen. Go help her out. Go invite her into your home. That's right. I, exactly. But I'm willing to bet if you're giving her money, you're helping her out, you're standing by her, and you're bringing her into your home, I, I, I'm willing to bet she's probably going to keep the baby. But what do we do? We'd rather have the government legislate the law for the behavior opposed to us being the hands and feet of Jesus. So Dr. King is reminding us of this. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Don't look to the law. Don't look to Caesar to bring forth these things. It's a very powerful and important principle. So how do you change the hearts of men? He has this thing called soul force. You can't change a man's mind. You have to change a man's heart. And the only way you change a man's heart is by walking out in love and in nonviolence and in understanding and in compassion. He calls it soul force. There's another thing I would love for some of us to do. If I, I'm, I'm, I really just need to do what Mario did and just get off of Facebook. Because there are people who I have looked up to, who are believers, and all that is on, the only thing that is on their Facebook wall is one thing after the other of just de degrading people and tearing down and being militant and saying all this kind of stuff. You're like, where is the power of Jesus? I don't want to make this political, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into like, should we have a wall? Should we not have a wall? Should we do this? Should we not do that? I'm not getting into that. We could talk about that some other time in private. But to degrade the, the life and the image of Jesus of God inside of another human being for your political gain is detestable. Detestable. Have compassion. I'm not saying don't have a wall. I'm not saying that is the act of compassion. Maybe the act of compassion is to have a wall. But I do know this. The act of compassion is to have compassion on people. And don't degrade them. Not necessarily create a sanctuary city. But don't degrade the, the, the humanity and the God-given spirit that is within them. Amen. And that's all that people are doing. It's disgusting. Choose a higher call. Choose a higher place. Because that's what Jesus did. To you detestable Gentiles. Unclean, unworthy, not children of the covenant. But he brought you in. And he loved on you. Soul force. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Another thing he taught us is that we, we, we yes, we, we, we do not look to laws to change the hearts of men. We need to look to changing their hearts so that laws will be changed. He also taught that to defeat the opinions of, of a majority, that we need to do that not with intellect, but rather with manners of the heart.
There's so, there's like so much we could say. Abortion, homosexuality, murder, crime, drugs. I mean, make as many laws as you want. Go ahead. People are going to still do their bad behavior. You've got to go after their heart. You've got to show them a better way. Laws are good. I'm all for laws. But don't allow the laws of the land to be an excuse for you not to walk in the laws of the righteous and the laws of the Lord. To walk out, to show love and to show compassion and get your hands dirty in the trenches. That's like the whole thing with tithing, right? We tithe to the government. You tithe to the government. You give them a tax so they can take care of all the things of the gospel. Why don't you tithe to the church? Why don't you tithe into the kingdom with your time and your money and circumnavigate the government? Go, 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 go help the poor with the gospel because the government doesn't come with the gospel. Go help a pregnant woman that's single with the power of the gospel, not with, with, with tax money. Jesus wants us to get our hands in it and we do it by with, with the matters of the heart. And so, yeah, okay, fine, Dave. You know, how do, we, how do we change this stuff with the matters of the heart? Well, I just gave you some examples of walking out the gospel. But Dr. King taught that um, there needs to be unity. Unity through love, not division. He didn't get into identity politics. He didn't get into group identities. Which is like, it's just plaguing, plaguing our society. Black American, white American, Hispanic American, a white American, versus, uh, another, uh, I'm sorry, not a white, well, white American, but then you have like, you know, female American versus male American. Everyone's versus everyone. Everyone is against everyone. Like Dr. King, Martin didn't teach in such ways. He said the power will come when we're together, not divided. If you wanted division, you like, you hung out with Malcolm X. If you wanted unity, you hung out with Dr. King. Unity, not division. Malcolm X wanted division. He's like, let's have separate communities. Let's be apart from one another until he saw the light. which is a whole other thing. At the end of his life, he, he saw the change and he made a change. But then his followers actually put 30 bullets inside of his chest for choosing love instead of hate. So you can't have this class division, rich people versus poor people, white people versus black people, women versus men, men versus men. It's like, holy cow, the power of the gospel is found in the unity of the brethren. Amen? Probably Dr. King's most famous uh, lesson is his dream, right? I have a dream that one day my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It would be wonderful if we like judge people by their character, opposed to their piggy bank, opposed to their gifting. Wow, he's a really good speaker, he's a really good worship artist. Judge him by their character. Right? We've been talking a lot, or at least I've been talking a lot about the, the dangers of having your gifting outpacing your character. And you know, your character has to lead the gifting. And if not, you're going to have a whole big mess in your life. And so these are like some of the, 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 the famous things that Dr. King has taught. And these are things that I teach in my associate's classroom to some extent. But if you can believe it, I, I believe there's even a more important lesson that Dr. King should teach us. And it's a lesson you're not going to find in a textbook. 
And it's a lesson you're not going to find on the news on Monday. And it's a lesson you're not going to find in, in, in the newspapers when we're commemorating Martin Luther King on Monday. But it's a lesson that he did teach. Let me give you a little background to the, to the lesson. It's late at night. I think he's in a hotel room. He's over sitting over a cup of coffee. He gets a phone call. The phone call is Martin, or actually he uses the N-word. N-word. If you don't stop what you're doing, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your daughter. Now, what we're going to do in a moment is I really want you to listen to it. I've listened to it like 20 times. So like I know his little preaching really well. But if this is your first time hearing it, you've got to really listen to it. This is, I think, the real lesson for us from Dr. King is his response of what he does when he receives that phone call. If you can hit play, please, and uh, you can switch over the image because I want you to see the stillness pictures. Make sure it's loud. I never will forget one night, very late. It was around midnight. You can have some strange experiences at midnight. The telephone started ringing and I picked it up. On the other end was an ugly voice. That voice said to me in substance, nigger. We are tired of you and your mess now. And if you are out of this town in three days, you're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. I've heard these things before, but for some reason that night got to me. I turned over and I tried to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep.
Thank you. Switch back to the computer. Thank you. So, you may not have picked up all of it, but we're gonna, I'm just going to walk through some of what he was saying to encourage you. Now, let's think about this. Like, you know, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting over a cup of coffee. It's like, no, the, the, the coffee is not looking like that. He's in a hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia. This is something that you get at Starbucks and someone puts on their Instagram account to show that they have a, a, a flashy, cool life. I don't know if any of you are like me, but this is what my coffee looks like. And so let's, let's be real here. This is him sitting in some like fancy coffee shop. This is him making a cup of coffee in a hotel room. And what's going on? The spirit of the age is pressing down on him. J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, uh, uh, head of the FBI, is, is trying to come up with all this dirt against him. John F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, who willed himself to be like the peacemaker of the African, and, uh, African Americans, white Americans, is like, 
Dr. Martin Luther King, you're going a little too far here, bud. There's a split in his own camp. Some people are like, we're tired. We're tired of loving people and getting beat up and getting lynched and getting beat on. Let's fight back. And then a guy calls him on the phone. Multiple, like he, he gets death threats all the time. But this one's special. This one is, we're coming after your daughter. This is a guy who's looking over his cup of coffee. He's getting a death threat for him and his little girl. You know, situations like that don't look like this. They look like that. I mean, things are broken down. This is like him over a cup of coffee late at night just coming to the Lord and just saying, I don't know what to do anymore. And so what, what, what are some of the things that we can really learn that they're not going to tell you about on the news on Monday? That this, at that night, in that moment, over that cup of coffee, when he gets that phone call, he realized that all of the philosophy that he's been taught, all of the theology has been taught in schools that he has learned, doesn't mean a rip right now. Like right now, things just got real. I, I can't draw on my philosophy. I can't draw on my degree. I can't even draw on religion I just flat out, he says, I need to experience God right now. Nothing else is going to help me. I just need to experience you right now. My little girl may be killed. And I just felt the Lord just welling up in me. And it's just like, what, what's your coffee time? What's your, what's your coffee conflict? Like, what thing in your life is, is so wretched and so bad and so hard that you're like, I have no way out. The only thing I can, can, the only thing I can do is just experience God. It's the only way out. And he's looking at the cup of coffee, and he's thinking about his daughter, and he's thinking, like, how can he encourage her when she gets older and all this? And the only thing he can think about, the only thing that's going to encourage her is he says this, that you need to call on that man, that man Jesus, that your daddy used to tell you about. He who can make a where out of nowhere. He goes on to say, he's so weak and he's losing courage. And he, then he hears a voice. And the voice says, Martin, stand up for Righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And then he says, he, he continues to hear the voice of Jesus talk on. Then he says, I promise you, Martin, I promise you I would never leave you. I would never forsake you. So fight on. But you see, it's these coffee moments. It's these moments of difficulty that bring you there. Last week before he got the phone call, I don't know if he was there. And I know later on in his life he was not there because he made some dangers. He made some sins, some bad ones. But in that moment, in that moment, he, he has to experience God. He says at that moment, at, at the moment of torment, he realized that you, that you better know him. You better know his name. You better know how to call on his name. And so he, not me, says this. Don't be a fool. This is like God speaking to him and he's speaking to the, to, to, to the church. Don't be a fool. Recognize your dependency on God. And you're not going to see that in a textbook. 
You're not going to see that on the news. What we have in this moment is that when everything came to the very precipice of destruction and torment and difficulty, he's looking down at that coffee when he gets his phone call and he realizes that every last bit of training that he's got, every skill in speaking that he has, everything that has ever been done and that he can do is out the window. And the only thing, the only thing that will sustain him is an experience with God. Amen? And so I just asked us this question, as I already asked, is like, what's your coffee moment? Like, how bad do things have to get until you cry out to God and say, I need to know your name? I need to know your name, Jesus. I need to experience you. Now, you can't, you can't, and, and the encouragement here is this don't let it be the moment of death, and don't let it be the moments of destruction and despair. You gotta have that coffee moment before the coffee spills over, and before someone calls you up on the phone and saying they're gonna kill you. You gotta have that moment when you feel actually that you don't need the dependency on God. Because when all else is lost and everything else is horrible, that's when you're like, oh, I need you, God. But what's very ironic is it's the very place where you're completely independent that you absolutely need dependency. Because when you become independent of God, that's when you really are going down a bad path. And that's when you got to cry out, I need to know your name. I need to experience you right now. I need to experience you right now. If you have the worship team, come on down, please. So I just want to encourage us that, you know, maybe you don't recognize, maybe you don't really stop and think about Martin Luther King. Maybe you have work on Monday. I don't know. But I want to encourage you with this today on Sundays, experience God. Cry out to Him. Have a dependency on Him. And don't let it be when you come to a place where there is no way out. Let it be now. When things are good, when you're not sick, when you don't have a disease, when things aren't faltering, when you aren't paying your bills. Like, let it be now and experience Him. James chapter 2, 19 says it this way. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So do you know that demons be- actually believe Jesus is Lord? Mark chapter 1, 24, a demon is, a man is possessed by a demon, and the demon actually says, you know, please leave me alone. You, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. You are the Lord. Leave me alone. So even demons don't just know about Jesus. They know that he is Lord. So we say, oh, well, you know, there's people that, that, that know of Jesus. They know who he is, right? People that are, are not believers, right? They know who Jesus is. Everyone knows, kind of knows who Jesus is. But this is taken to the next level. This is like, there are people, or rather there's demons, that know that Jesus is Lord. And some people in the church know that Jesus is Lord, but they haven't experienced God yet. This is like kind of freaky stuff. I mean, I mean... The devil even knows that, that, that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's people in the church that know who Jesus is, they know he is Lord, and they know that he's been raised from the dead. That's great. The devil knows that too. So like, what's the, what's the difference? And what's going on here is this. John Piper says it this way. Christians don't just believe the same facts the devil believes. We love and embrace the truth about God. 
We need to not just believe in God. Just like Martin Luther King at that moment in that, in that hotel room, it had, to go, it had to transcend belief. It had to go to the place of embracing. Embracing the truth of God. And what is embrace? Embrace is to love. And to love is to abide. John 14 verse 23 says it this way. He who hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated me, both me and my father. That's in chapter 15. But in John chapter 14, verse 23, says this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus goes on to say, abide in me and I will abide in you. What is to abide? Abide is to love. And to love is to embrace. It's to experience love. It's got to be more than just this intellectual exercise that Dr. King was talking about. It has to be a deep-rooted truth of embracing, of abiding in who he is and calling upon his name, knowing his name, calling out his name in the morning, calling out his name at night. Time with him, inviting him into your mess, inviting him into those coffee moments. Say, Lord, I, I have you in my mind, but I need an experience with you. I want your presence to fall in my midst. As Paul was, our Paul was saying, like, to, to be quiet and to listen and wait for him to speak, to reside in intimacy with him. And closing up today, Dr. King gave us one more lesson. I'm sure there's many more lessons, but one that I wanted to talk about is this. It's, it's a disturbing one. It's such a disturbing one because I believe that largely we have done it. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. The thing is, like, we have, we, we always have the temptation of just becoming a YMCA. We always have the temptation of just becoming like, like just a social community group. Where people get together and they talk to each other and you have a little coffee and you, and you feel good that you have friendships. But if we get to that, if we get to that place, there will not be the furtherance of the gospel. And you say, all right, Dave, well, how do, how do we keep ourselves becoming irrelevant? The presence. The presence of God. Embracing Him. When God shows up in your midst, you can't have a social club. When God shows up, people's lives are changed. People are set free. People are literally healed. People are spiritually healed. Look, we can have a cool, flashy church with all this kind of buzz and whistles, but who cares? There's greater temptations out there for the next generation. I could do that playing my video games. I could do that on the internet. I could go, go to somewhere else and, and feel that kind of experience. 
but young people and all people will be drawn to abiding with the Lord. When His presence is here that you can't even question it. Not just here, but in your life. When you walk and you carry the mantle of the presence of God and you've experienced God today. When you experience God today and you show that to people, people will be drawn to the brightness of your rising, it says in the prophets. They'll be drawn to the brightness of your rising, of the Lord inside of you. The scriptures say, Arise and shine for the, the, for the Lord has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. It's here. It's in your midst. But we need you to just experience Him. And so, we just keep it simple. How do you experience God? Just like Dr. King, you look down at your coffee moment. And you say, Lord, I need to know you right now. I want to know your name right now. I'm inviting you into this right now. You don't need a theology degree. You don't need to read a whole bunch of things in the Bible, although it's good to read things in the Bible. But when you're in these moments, you don't even have to be in the moments, as I'm trying to encourage you. Like, don't be in the moment to do it. Like, do it now. When things are peachy, when things are fine, when it doesn't seem like you need a dependency on the Lord, that's when you absolutely need dependency on the Lord. And say, Jesus, I need to know you. I need to know your name. God is salvation. Come. I want to abide in you. You abide in me. You said you're never going to leave me nor forsake me. I'm inviting you. I'm asking you. Your word says if, if one of my children asks for a loaf of bread, will I give him a rock? No, of course not. Ask for more of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and he shall give it to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God liberally without reproach. Meaning like think big things to God. I'm lacking wisdom in all this, Lord. Well, go to him liberally with like abundance and say, Lord, I'm asking you to just download wisdom to me. He's so going to want it. And that's how we become not an irrelevant social club. That's how and when you look different. That's how and when that person at work says, I don't know why I'm sharing this with you, but there's just simply something different about you. That's why you get phone calls at, the, at night. Phone calls in the morning with someone who's, who's broken and is hurting. It's like, I don't know where to go, but I know you have something that I don't have. And I need you to walk me off this edge right now because you've experienced the presence of God. And it will be drawn to that. And in some way, in some way, Dr. King didn't always teach all of that. But the principles of that is what drew a nation to look to him for that guidance. So that we would overcome our greed and we would be filled with the love of the Lord. Father, I just ask right now that we will always be on guard to not allow this church or our life to become just a social club. That this would not just be a place of entertainment. May we be a place that houses the presence of God. Father, I pray that all of us can walk away and be motivated tomorrow, Monday morning, Dr. King Day, to think about what it means and what it looks like to experience God. Father, I pray that there be hearts and minds and souls that cry out to you once again like they did when they were early in their walk with the Lord. And they just say, I need to know you again. 
I need to know your name. I need to feel and experience your presence. It's been too long, Daddy. And we know, Lord, that it's your wish. You love us unconditionally. And you will be with us always. But sometimes we just put up these blocks, right? These walls between me and you. Lord, I pray that we understand that those, those walls are so easily, so easily torn down because you're right there just ready to knock them down as soon as we just cast our eye on you. Let us abide in you and abide in us. Let us love you like you love us. Let us experience your presence. Let us know your name in deeper, more profound ways. Please, let it be. Let it be not when things get rough that we begin this, but let it begin now. If you feel like you haven't experienced God in this way in a while, we want you to come down. We want to just pray with you. There's no harm. There's no harm. The horror, the harm is in the stubbornness. The harm is the stubbornness of sitting in the seat and saying, no, I'm closing myself off. That's the harm. But we release it when we walk in the opposite spirit. If you want to be isolated, want to be left alone, walk in the opposite thing and be singled out and walk forward and allow your brothers and sisters to stand by because right there, right there, you're saying that you're not as important as the experience of God. And those walls will already automatically start to come down as you step out in faith in that way. So as the worship team begins worship, I encourage you to stay here for a little bit as the Lord leads you and just experience the presence of God. Come down for that prayer. If not, we'll see you this Wednesday for prayer and worship. We also have some fellowship time downstairs. But don't let the fellowship become a social club. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll be up here praying for those that would like it.